We're going to read from the Bible this morning. We've got three passages, and the first one is on page 90 of the Blue Bibles, Deuteronomy chapter 13, from verses 1 to 5. Here we go. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. The second reading is on page 93, Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 to 22. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. And the final reading, page 531, is from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. Thank you, Robin. Well, I'll encourage you to... uh, have your, your Bibles open, but uh, we will be moving around a little bit as well, so if you find that that is tricky, the, the readings will be on the screen. 
And if you are taking notes, feel free to just uh, write them, the references down and look them up later. <clears throat> well, I remember being at a conference, a Christian conference, many years ago, uh, where the preacher got up and he said something along the lines of, you don't want me to fly halfway across the world to be with you tonight and not have a word from the Lord for you. I'm pleased to tell you that I have a word from the Lord for you tonight. Now, that's a very poor appropriation of whatever his uh, accent sounded like. But you can tell that he, you know, I'm trying to be American. He, he came from America. That was the thing that he was saying. And then he then proceeded to share things that he believed God had told him to share with everybody who was at that conference. Well, friends, I know that you don't want to have dragged yourself out of bed early on a Sunday morning and wrangled your kids and gotten them in the car and, and, and gotten them to church this morning without being confident that you would be hearing a word from the Lord this morning. And so, church, I'm pleased to tell you that I have a word from the Lord for you this morning. And here it is. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him. But he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Now, if you're a Christian, you can say a hearty amen, amen. to that. Can anybody tell me where that came from? Have a guess. 1 Corinthians Chapter 14, verses 1 to 5. So what's the difference between the word that I just gave you and the messages that you often hear claimed to be words from the Lord by preachers like the one that I heard at that conference? That is what lies at the heart of our topic this morning. Is a word from the Lord only something that God Himself has spoken or can it be something else, more subjective, something that, that I feel like God is telling me, and perhaps something that might even be incorrect? You see, the words that I just gave you, as we pointed out, were from 1 Corinthians 14. Those words are the very words of God from His book, the Bible. But what do they mean? What do those verses mean, and what do we do with them? How do I earnestly desire the gift of prophecy? And what do I do with tongues? What does that mean to speak in it? As I said last week, this topic is largely not an issue that separates true Christians from false Christians, nor is it something important enough to put in our statement of faith. But in the same way as last week, it certainly could be something that separates Christians from non-Christians. 
For example, the most obvious uh, example would be if somebody uh, speaks to you and claims to speak to you a supposed word from the Lord that is just as infallible, infallible meaning uh, unable to fail, just as perfect, a word just as God-breathed as the Bible itself. If somebody claims that, then we are now talking about a different religion to Christianity. As I mentioned last week, this is what Joseph Smith claimed about uh, the Book of Mormon. This is what Muslims claim about uh, the Quran. To claim that is to make a heretical claim, which now puts you outside of Christianity. But even when discussing this with Christians who wouldn't go that far, this is still an important issue. Let me ask you some questions that indicate some of the significant differences that this makes to your Christian life, depending on what you believe. If prophecy is a gift given for the building up and encouragement of the church, are we neglecting the highest gift available to us by not pursuing it? If prophecy is a gift that is given to help us navigate life's challenges and questions, if it means that God God uses it to help us, guide us in our life's big decisions, then are we blocking our ears from things that God might want us to hear and to know. If these gifts do indeed continue, then shouldn't we be seeking to obey these instructions earnestly in our church gatherings? In the life of our church, uh, since we started in October 2020, so far we have not had anybody come up and, and give a tongue and its interpretation in our public gatherings. Are we being disobedient for not doing that? If tongues is a gift that is given so that Christians may build themselves up, then are we missing out on a significant means of personal encouragement and perseverance in the Christian faith by not pursuing the gift of tongues? And if we teach that such gifts have ceased, then are we, as Sam Storms says, quenching the Spirit and therefore disobeying 1 Thessalonians 5.19? As I said, this is not in the same group as the most important issues of the Christian faith, but it is important. And one of the reasons we wanted to do these topical sermons was so that we could be better prepared when we return to preaching from 1 Corinthians, when we come back to chapter 14 in a few weeks. See, where you land on these issues that we've looked over will have a significant impact on the way you read those chapters. Before we dive into what the Bible has to say about prophecy in tongues, let me mention a few important things to help set the scene. Firstly, I had a conversation with somebody after the sermon last week, which made me realize that I need to be clear about the role of experience in all of this, especially my own experiences. I mentioned last week that I uh, have spent most of my life in the charismatic movement, And I'll talk a little bit more about some of those experiences again this morning. But I want to be clear that even though such experiences are necessarily a part of each of our stories, all of us will have experiences with which we then uh, make decisions about and and will unavoidably influence the way that we think. Experiences ought not to be what ultimately shapes our understanding of God. 
As a matter of fact, despite having some significant theological shifts myself over the last 10 to 15 years, it's only in the last year or so that I have started to come to a more settled cessationist position. Uh, I'll tell you more about my own experience with tongues a bit later on, for example. And so for me, I I was surprised to find uh, that uh, for most of my Christian life after leaving the Pentecostal church, I never completely gave up on some uh, of its central continuationist beliefs. As far as I could tell, especially when I read 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, the continuationist reading of those chapters was the more biblical one. Many of you will have uh, similar stories, not necessarily the same conclusions, but it's worth being aware of the fact that our experiences, they often take the lead in what we think and what we believe and how we live. Yet as Christians, the dance of our life of faith is what I like to call the Spirit Scripture Salsa. Kids, does anyone know what a salsa is? other than a dip to put corn chips into? No? Do any of you like dancing? A few, maybe. Have any of you ever done the kind of dancing where you, like, have a partner? I mean, like, that's cooties, right? Gross. I don't want to do that. (laughs) Maybe one day you will. Anyway, there is a type of dancing called salsa dancing, and you have to dance with a partner. A bunch of young people in Darwin did this a few years ago. Maybe they still do. And in this kind of dancing, you have what's called a lead and a follow. Now, if you have a lead, have a guess what the person who is the lead does. Do you think they lead or do you think they follow? Let me make it easier for you. Lead, that's right. The person who is the lead leads, right? And the person who is the follow follows. In our dance of faith and life, God leads by His Holy Spirit through His Holy Scriptures. And sometimes we like to change partners and have experience take the lead instead. But that leads to a completely different dance. That leads to a whole bunch of missteps that God does not intend for us. And so I hope that even as we try to make sense of our experiences, God's Spirit and His Scriptures would always lead us in our faith and in our practice. And the last thing I want to say by way of introduction is a further clarification, just to be absolutely clear on the difference between gifts and works. Uh, To be clear, I am making a distinction between the extraordinary gifts that we read about in the New Testament and extraordinary works more generally. Now, it's important to recognize that many, if not most, cessationists believe that God still does extraordinary works today, or at the very least, He still can. Their main emphasis is simply that the extraordinary gifts are no longer in operation. So as we keep talking about this, it's good to remember that distinction. So here is how the shape of our exploration of this is going to look this morning. We'll look at it in three sections. Firstly, continuationism on prophecy and tongues. Secondly, cessationism on prophecy and tongues. And thirdly, living with and without prophecy and tongues. Now, unlike last week, I'm not going to spend an even amount of time on the first two points. I certainly want to represent the continuationist position as fairly and as accurately as I can, but given that my own convictions are more in the cessationist tent, as I mentioned last week, then I hope to spend more time talking about the implications of that for us today. 
So, let's begin with the first section, continuationism on prophecy uh, and tongues. Well, I gave you that story in the, uh, at the beginning. Uh, hands up if you've heard someone say the phrase, uh, whether from a preacher or somebody else, uh, from personally, I have a word from the Lord for you, or something similar to that. Yeah, familiar with that? It is a somewhat common phrase in some circles of evangelicalism. So our question is, what is a word from the Lord? What's a word from the Lord? A few months ago, Troy Davis, uh, another pastor here in Darwin, had his Facebook account hacked. Uh, I checked with him if I could tell this story. I mean, it would have been public anyway. (laughs) And this meant that whoever posted things on his page or sent messages from his account, uh, they were doing so on his behalf, pretending to be him. They were pretending to speak for him. But in reality, it wasn't him. Apparently, he tried to recruit people to join ISIS. Now, two-factor authentication on social media exists because we want our accounts to be secure, right? Now, if you don't have that, go and set that up as soon as we're finished today (laughs) so that the same thing doesn't happen to you. You see, we, we don't want people to be speaking on our behalf with our names and with our faces that we have not authorized. You know, Troy doesn't want people to think that he wants them to join ISIS. And even though that is a a somewhat humorous example, because, you know, anyone who knows Troy knows that he would never do that, can you imagine if someone took him seriously? What if one of his friends was already a little bit radicalized and then they saw this as Troy's approval for them to go and join ISIS? Imagine how Troy would feel. He would be horrified. He would do everything he could to make it clear to this person and to the world that that was not him speaking. The question for us is, if someone claims to have a word from the Lord, do we always have to be sure that it is a word from Him? I ask this because this is a crucial distinction between the two main views on prophecy. The continuationist must leave room for modern-day prophecies to be wrong. As I mentioned last week, there are a few on the fringes who would suggest that, uh, you know, their words are as God-breathed as the Bible, but most today, most continuationists would say that the gift of prophecy does not operate this way. Now, the main scholarly work to turn to, if you're interested, uh, that most continuationists lean on is by a theologian named Wayne Grudem. It's called The Gift of Prophecy in the New Testament and Today. His subheading for chapters 3 and 4, where he talks about what New Testament prophecy is, says this, New Testament prophecy, speaking merely human words to report something God brings to mind speaking merely human words to report something God brings to mind. That's his summary of his, of, uh, his New Testament definition of prophecy. Uh, and that's probably one that we're reasonably familiar with, aren't we? If somebody says they have a word from the Lord for you, or a word of knowledge, or a word of wisdom perhaps, there is an understanding that what they say is not as authoritative as what the Bible says. When people share this with us, we know that sometimes what they say might be right, sometimes it might be wrong. And so for the continuationists, this doesn't pose a problem 
when you have Grudem's definition here. These words are not infallible words, words that cannot fail of God that you cannot ignore. But where does this definition come from? Well, there are several places that they go to in Scripture to ground this understanding of prophecy. But again, I'll just briefly mention the main points. Uh, as I've said before, this only captures the broadest points and will necessarily lack nuance. So feel free to follow those up later. Firstly, not all examples of prophecy in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament, some would contend, especially in 1 Corinthians 14, display this kind of, you know, thus says the Lord function of prophecy. So, for example, they would turn to verse 3 and say that prophecies are for upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And so, given such a definition, it makes sense that prophecy is not just telling somebody what is going to happen or some kind of really direct word from God that needs to be said. Secondly, they would say that the Bible teaches that such prophecies need to be weighed and tested. So, again, in chapter 14, in verse 29, Paul says, "...let two or three prophets speak, and then let the others weigh what is said." Not only that, they would say that 1 John 4.1 also applies to this. Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits. And perhaps most importantly, 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 20 to 21 says not to despise prophecies, but to test everything and to hold fast to what is good. So, they would say, putting these together, the New Testament witness is that New Testament prophecies could be wrong. If you had to test them, then surely they, they could have been wrong. Finally, they say that there is an example of prophecy being incorrect in the Bible, and that is that of Agabus in Acts chapter 21. So, uh, they would say that when you compare the prophecy itself, what Agabus says would happen, and what eventually happens in the rest of chapter 21 to Paul, Agabus doesn't get the details correct, and so therefore this is an example of Grudem's definition of speaking merely human words to report something God brings to mind. And so that is, in broad strokes, the argument for this definition of New Testament prophecy. As for tongues, as I mentioned last week, the definition that continuationists give is that it is an ecstatic language. Now, it was helpful this week for my wife to ask me what I actually meant by that word. Uh, so, a, a, a tricky question for the kids, because all the other ones have been so easy so far, right? Does anyone know what the word ecstatic means? If somebody says to you, I'm ecstatic, what does that mean? Have a guess, given what I've just done. Happy! Thank you, Rebecca. Ecstatic means to be really, really, really happy, right? That's the definition of the word that we mostly are familiar with. But there is another definition of it. And I know for some people, when a preacher rolls out a dictionary definition for a word, they roll their eyes and groan, uh, which is why mostly I don't do it. Uh, but in this case, I think it's actually quite helpful. You see, the second definition that the Oxford English Dictionary gives for ecstatic is that it is uh, involving an experience of mystic self-transcendence. So, an ecstatic vision of God, something which is, which is uh, uh, unexplainable in, in human or natural terms. 
And so how this plays out uh, with tongues uh, is, is that the continuationists will say that what is being referred to here is a language that is not like any other tongue or language that is in use in our world today. It doesn't have a particular code or a particular structure or a particular grammar like every other language that is spoken by human beings. It is simply a divine, mystical language that pours forth out of a person's heart and spirit. God gives the words and the sounds, and we trust that what is going on here is a spiritual communication happening between the person and God. As I mentioned last week, this is grounded in a few texts. Paul's reference to speaking in the tongues of angels in the first verse of chapter 13 is used to ground this definition. And then also Romans 8.26, where, where it speaks of the Spirit interceding with groans too deep for words for us. But also, 1 Corinthians 14 and some key verses in the chapter are used to defend this definition. So verse 4, for example, speaks of how the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. So they would read that and say, well, how could somebody who is speaking another language be building up themselves? What does that actually, how is that possible? Why wouldn't they just speak in their own language? Also, in verse 14, this is said to refer to this ecstatic experience of God giving a Christian a language that is not normally spoken, when he says that my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Not to mention the fact that Paul, when referring to different languages in the world, in verse 10, uses a different word. He uses the word languages rather than the word tongues. And they would say that is Paul differentiating the different, he, he's saying these two are different things, tongues and languages. So piecing these together, continuationists say, this gives us a picture of tongues that is an ecstatic language. And there you have it. Those are the two uh, definitions of prophecy and tongues as understood by continuationists. Now this morning, I won't directly reply to each of those points made. I may indirectly do so when presenting how cessationists define their terms. So if you have any particular questions about any of these, by the end, please feel free to come and talk to me uh, afterwards or to one of our other elders. Well, let's take a look at the next point, cessationism on prophecy and tongues. How do cessationists define these two words? Um, don't, you, don't you just hate it in movies when they replace the original actor in a sequel? I know you would. <laughs> Kids, has that happened in any movies that you can think of? Where you've watched a movie and then, they've watched, and then you watch a sequel and then they've changed the actor completely of a certain character? Can you think of any? It's kind of hard to think of, right? I mean, it's hard also because most of the movies you guys have seen are, are probably cartoons. So it's hard to know if they've changed the voice actor. But it does happen. I remember when I watched Aladdin 2, they changed almost all the voices. It was terrible. I was, I was like, I, I hated that. For the adults, uh, I'm sure you guys can probably think of some. Obviously, the uh, you know, com classic of comic book films. There's like a million sequels to those films. Uh, and they, and they, two notable ones, I think, uh, the first two Iron Man films where they changed Rhodey and uh, also the first two Batman films that Christopher Nolan directed and they changed Rachel. Uh, both of those, in my opinion, were upgrades. But anyway, regardless of, 
uh, of uh, our opinions of those actors. When that happens, uh, we don't like it because there is supposed to be continuity between the first and the second. You know, in those first few minutes of seeing that new actor, you kind of feel like you need to, you know, develop a relationship with them all over again because you'd already become attached to this first one in the first movie, right? You know what I'm feeling? Am I the only one who gets emotionally attached to actors? Yeah, okay, films. You know what I'm saying? So at least at first, it feels like they have changed the character. They've completely changed who that person is in the whole story of, of the film. And so changing... Uh, well, cessationists contend that this is what it feels like continuationists are trying to do with their definitions. Changing the definition is like replacing that actor. It's, it's same, same, but different. If prophecy had a particular definition in the Old Testament, and the New Testament doesn't indicate to us that there is a change in that definition, then why should we change the definition? We, should, uh, we would need good reasons to believe that it has indeed changed. As I mentioned last week, the, the burden of proof is on the continuationist to show that prophecy has changed in the New Testament. I gave you a small defense of that in the previous point. But for se several reasons, the cessationist says that the definition stands and that it has significant implications. So at first, let me take you to the beginning of the book of Hebrews. Notice here that uh, the very definite nature of what the author of Hebrews is saying about how God speaks and through whom He speaks. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. You see, long ago, He spoke through the prophets, the ones that we read about in the Old Testament. But in the last days, He has spoken by His Son. We are living in the last days. And as I mentioned last week, Jesus' authoritative, authoritative representatives in the apostles carried on that message. And that is actually what the author of Hebrews alludes to in chapter 2, where he says, This message was declared to us at first by the Lord and was attested to us by those who heard... And God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. Notice the progression of how this message was delivered from Jesus. It was declared at first by the Lord, and then it was attested to us by those who heard, the apostles, the prophets who were there in Jesus' day. They were witnesses to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and they carried on His message. And there is a, a progressive sense in both of these passages that the revelatory work of God is nearing or at its completion. You notice how in these verses, everything is past tense. It has happened. God spoke in these last days by His Son. So secondly, as we read earlier, in Old Testament times, the consequences for a prophet getting it wrong were severe. You heard all of those from Deuteronomy 13 and 18. The test of a prophet was whether what they prophesied came true or not, whether they told the people to worship other gods or not, and whether what they prophesied agreed with the words that God had shared in times past. And again, this makes sense. If a prophet is somebody who speaks as God's representative and speaks on his behalf, and if God is perfect and his words do not fail, then this is just the practical conclusion 
of those truths. God cannot speak a fallible word. He cannot speak a word that is imperfect or able to fail. And therefore, His prophets cannot either. Not only that, but the prophecy that we do see in Scripture, it doesn't have anything to do with the kinds of personal decisions that we often want and seek messages God, uh, messages from God for. Graham Goldsworthy, he puts it like this. Every case of special guidance given to individuals in the Bible has to do with that person's place in the outworking of God's saving purposes. There are no instances in the Bible in which God gives special and specific guidance to the ordinary believing Israelite or Christian in the details of their personal experience. Now, I haven't gone through every instance in the Bible to prove that claim, uh, but from what I can muster in my own mind, it seems right. If this is indeed what prophecy is, and indeed the purpose of prophecy, then you can see why cessationists say that the gift has now ceased. There is no longer any need for this kind of word from the Lord, because all of those words in the Old Testament have now found their fulfillment in the gospel. And the gospel has revealed to us all that we need to know between Christ's first coming, His second coming, and the eternity that will come beyond that. The words that have been spoken in order to reveal God's redemptive plan for humanity are complete. As a matter of fact, cessationists argue that the Bible itself teaches this about prophecy. Let me read to you from Ephesians 2, verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That key phrase in verse 20, right in the middle, succinctly summarizes other things that Paul has said and alluded to in his letters, particularly in 1 Corinthians. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. You see, at the very least, he is including New Testament prophets in this, if not speaking exclusively about them. And again, this makes perfect sense if prophets spoke not just human words that God brought to mind, but the very words of God. If prophets spoke words that weren't God-breathed and that couldn't be trusted, then the foundation of the whole building is going to be shaky right? It's going to be unreliable. Just as Jesus uses this same image when He says that the person who does not build their lives on His words is like a person who builds a building, uh, builds his house on sand. And so just ask any engineer who has been involved in building a, a city in a desert like Abu Dhabi or Dubai And they will tell you that you need to do something with the sand or something about the sand before you build on it. Sand is a horrible foundation for a building. And so this this also makes sense of why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 12, which we saw a few weeks ago, that the order of spiritual gifts is first apostles, second prophets. 
if they play a foundational role in the establishing and the setting up of the church right at the point of its birth, then such ordering makes sense. Finally, as uh, Braden mentioned last week during question time, let me encourage you to have a read through the book of Acts and have the question in mind about how Luke is portraying the prophets. Does it seem like Luke speaks of the prophets as though they are the same thing as Old Testament prophets, or does he have a different definition in mind? I've already revealed my hands on that issue, so I'll leave it to you to explore further. Last thing to say about this issue of prophets is that uh, 1 Corinthians 14 is easily the most contentious passage when it comes to what it means and what we do with prophecy. When we return to our series in a couple of weeks, I hope to deal with some of those questions in more detail. So, there you have it. That's the cessationist understanding of New Testament prophecy and that it is just as God-breathed and infallible as Old Testament prophecy. Well, what about tongues? Now, it's worth noting that the uh, ecstatic definition of tongues uh, that I referred to before is arrived at from a continuationist reading of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. That's where the definition itself actually comes from. Some uh, scholars will point to external resources outside the Bible for support for this definition, but in the Bible itself, the reasoning comes from this reading of these chapters. So, for the cessationists, the question is, well, which passages, well, for all of us, really, which passages should be the ones that guide our definition of tongues? Should it be these chapters or others? The first thing to note is that... uh, Kids, what, what, is, what is your tongue? Can you show me? Anyone? Does, is anyone bold enough to show me their tongue? Ah, there it is. Yep, that's right. It's your, your physical tongue is that organ which is responsible for you speaking, right? And in the Bible, often, uh, the, that is exactly what is, it's referring to, your physical tongue or a physical tongue. But outside of that, the majority of times, it is usually talking about uh, an earthly language. So when you say you speak in a tongue, it is saying you speak in a language, a certain, you know, yeah, you know what I'm saying. You understand my tongue, right, on that? More importantly, we see this in Acts chapter 2, which describes the first instance of this miracle of tongues. And because of that, it makes sense to me that that would be the guiding definition for what tongues means. So in in verse 4, if tongues here means language, then you would want pretty strong evidence to go against that definition in 1 Corinthians. Once again, the burden of proof is on the person who wants to change that definition. Now, sometimes it is argued in Acts 2 that what we see here is not a miracle of speaking, but one of hearing. So, verses 6 and 8, after all, they talk about how the many people from different places hear the crowd speaking in all their different languages. So, why couldn't it be that the, what the language they were speaking is an ecstatic tongue, but then what happens is a, a, tr- a translation when the person is hearing it? Now, this was my assumption for a long time. 
Uh, I heard and had no reason to doubt stories of people speaking in the ecstatic language of tongues in a church meeting and somebody providing an interpretation and then somebody else hearing that and then hearing it in another language. So, for example, uh, one story from my own uh, upbringing was when uh, that happened in a meeting and then a person came up to the pastor to tell him to say, I didn't realize you spoke French. And, uh, and he said, what are you talking about? I don't speak French. He said, yes, you do. That, that person over there spoke French and then you translated it. And that was one of the stories. I've, I've read about similar reports of this phenomenon uh, from other faithful Christians. Perhaps you have as well. Now, regardless of what's actually happening in those stories, the problem with this idea when it comes to Acts chapter 2 is that the text explicitly says in verses 4, 6, and 11 that the believers speak in other tongues and in other languages. And on top of that, as Sam Waldron points out, the gift is actually called tongues, not ears. And so as the cessationist defines it, the gift of tongues is a gift of speaking another earthly language. And uh, just as a side note, but also related... One of the amazing things about Acts chapter 2 is that it serves as a reversal of God's judgment at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. In, In that chapter, you might remember, God scattered the people of the earth by confusing their languages so that they couldn't communicate and therefore build a great tower, a monument to their greatness. In Acts chapter 2, what we have is the first fruits of God's redemption in Jesus, in, in seeing them uh, uh, speak and hear all the languages of the earth. And so in Jesus, God's people would not be limited by their ethnicity or by their native tongue. It's a beautiful thing. I encourage you to consider that, think about it some more. So there you have it. I think both of these definitions of prophecy and tongues, they easily make sense of chapters 12 to 14 in 1 Corinthians. And as I mentioned, I hope to show how that applies in 1 Corinthians 14 in a few weeks. So with all of that Bible exploration, what does it all mean for us today? Well, that brings us to our final section, living with and without prophecy and tongues. Let me tell you my own tongues story. Uh, Up until 2020, just a couple of years ago, as I mentioned, I still hadn't been won over to cessationism or to these definitions of prophecy and tongues. I still held the view uh, that tongues were an ecstatic language. And as far as my own practice was concerned, even though I was uh, already speaking this ecstatic language less by that time, I still believed that I was genuinely speaking in tongues, and therefore, I did it occasionally. Uh, It was one evening in 2020, while I was in Washington, D.C., I'm pretty sure I was just lying in bed, that the thought occurred to me, uh, I suddenly remembered how I first got started in speaking in tongues, and I realized the implications of it. You see, when I was um, 13 years old, 
that was, uh, I, I distinctly remember the, the time and the moment when I was asking God to be able to speak in tongues. And even though I, I did this out of sincerity, and even though I, I'm, you know, I'm sure my heart was, was truly believing that God was using my mind to bring this about, uh, I knew in the moment, and I still distinctly remember, uh, that after praying to receive tongues, and when I tried to speak in tongues, I was actually copying what I was hearing my brother-in-law say when he spoke tongues, and I was just, just slightly modifying it to, to make it my own. As I realized this, lying in bed in Washington, D.C., uh, at the time, uh, even, even coming to this realization, I still believed that tongues were an ecstatic language. I was still open to receiving that gift of tongues. But as I realized that, I came to, to recognize that my own practice of speaking in tongues for the previous 23 years or so uh, had been based on a fabrication. The shift in conviction about you know, tongues being an actual language, that's only come uh, to me more recently as I've, set, as I've let Spirit-illuminated Scripture lead me in the salsa. But the thing that surprised me the most about coming to that realization of, of how I started in speaking in tongues myself was how much it felt to me like I was losing a part of myself. That was perhaps the biggest surprise. And, and that has happened to me a few times over the course of my faith. Uh, I'm not talking about minor changes here. You know, these were experiences and beliefs that I had, which at one point, they were anchors of my faith. There, there are instances that I can point to when I was a child, you know, roughly the same age as some of you guys. That, I, that as I grew up, as I moved into my teens, and as I continued to wrestle with my faith, I would go back to those experiences and point to them and say, no, there is no way that my faith could be false because this experience, it convinced me in that moment that God was real. There was a feeling, there was something that I just knew that, that regardless of what people might say to try and attack or undermine my faith, I could point to that and say, no, no one can take that away from me and no one can deny it. And so as my understanding of God was, was given greater illumination by His Spirit through His Word, and some of those experiences began to be tested and to be challenged by Scripture, I was faced with a choice. Is my faith built on the experiences that I had, on that feeling that I once had, or is it built on a sure and certain word from the Lord? I share all of that with you because I know that, as I mentioned last week, we all come from different backgrounds. We all come from a whole range of experiences. And some of the things that I've shared this morning and some of the things that I'm sure we'll continue to talk about as we explore this may even test and challenge some of your experiences, perhaps things that have been foundational to your faith. Now, I'm not trying to crush your Christian worldview. As I said, I know how that feels, and I know how hard that can be. I'm not expecting that, that I'll, I'll necessarily convince you of everything that I've taught over the last couple of weeks in such a short period of time. But what I do hope to encourage you in 
is a sure word from the Lord that you can build your life and your faith on. That has certainly been the case for me. As I've moved away from the shakier foundations of experience to the solid rock of God's words, I found my faith to be far more robust than it ever was. As I've let His Holy Spirit lead with His holy scriptures, I found the salsa of faith to be far more enthralling, to be far more amazing, to be far more joyful than I ever have. And that's not to say that I don't experience things in my faith. I'm not suggesting that suddenly experience doesn't happen. No, it certainly does. I certainly do experience things. There are things that I, that I appreciate and enjoy that I can remember feeling but they no longer play a foundational role. They're not the ones leading the dance. As we we keep talking about this and as we work our way through 1 Corinthians 14, I want to invite you to keep letting God take the lead by His Spirit through His Scriptures. So with that, let me give us a few ways that we live with and without prophecy in tongues. Firstly, friend, perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and all of this sounds like a whole lot of confusing stuff that you don't know what to do with. Well, if that's you, then let me encourage you that if the only thing that you take away from this message is the message of the gospel, then that's what matters most. Let me ask, who's the lead in your life salsa? Is it your experiences or the morals that your parents taught you or whatever the norm is in society? You see, as Christians, we believe that God created this world and He created us. And because of this, He has the right to demand being the lead in our lives. But in our sinfulness, we've rebelled against Him and decided to run off to other partners to take the lead. And because our God is perfect and holy, the just penalty for our sin is His righteous wrath. But the good news of the gospel is that God Himself, in Jesus His Son, came to earth being born of a virgin Mary, lived a life of perfect obedience and died on the cross in our place. He did that so that by turning from our sin and trusting in Him, we might be saved from the penalty of our sin. And in so doing, we return to the one who has loved us with a greater love than any other and we let him take the lead. And so if you haven't let Jesus take the lead in your life, do so today. Secondly, wherever you land on prophecy and tongues, Be even more in wonder of the words that God has spoken and the signs that He has performed, which we read about in Scripture. It seems to me that, uh, like many Christians, sorry, it seems to me like many Christians have the tendency today to believe that as good as God's word is, as much as we love it, you know, it would be better if we could have some supernatural works to show to our friends. It would be better if we could just have God speak to us a very direct word to our circumstance and lives. And we think that not just for our friends, but for ourselves. 
Brothers and sisters, don't fall for the lie that the rich man fell for in Jesus' story in Luke 16. He thought that an incredible miracle, like seeing someone raised from the dead, would, would cause his brothers to believe. But listen to Abraham's response to him. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Don't look back on the time of Jesus and the apostles and their ministry as though those were the glory days and that what God is doing now is just the less glorious, boring stuff. Yes, they were glorious days and they have not been repeated. But what God is doing today is not boring. Hearing Him speak through His Word is not boring. Being transformed and changed by His Spirit as you walk with Him is not boring. Living a life that glorifies God God and, and wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is not boring. Taking up your cross and following Jesus is not boring. Going to the ends of the earth to share the good news of the gospel so that we might celebrate alongside people of every tribe and nation and tongue in eternity is not boring. Living a faithful, quiet life of humble obedience in a small city in the far north of this giant continent is not boring. Whether we think such miraculous spiritual gifts continue or have ceased, may we never think that God's Word is not enough. May we never think of it as less amazing that God did this in a period of time that we no longer live in. And may we never think that we would be better off if we could just have more extraordinary works, if we could just have a direct lightning bolt word from God today. Don't look for wonder in a cheap trick. Don't seek to be amazed, to, to be in awe of God by just something that must happen in the here and now. Look for wonder in the fact that God has brought your dead soul to life and now His Holy Spirit dwells within you. That same Spirit dwells within you. You see, Jesus certainly thought that we would be better off without Him and without His supernatural ministry of being able to raise Lazarus from the dead or to heal the blind man or to heal the leper and, 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 and His miracles. He thought it would be better that He would not be here to do all of that for us today, but that His Spirit would be. John 16, 7 says, It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him. We are better off with His Holy Spirit with us today. As J.D. Greer says, the Spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. Thirdly, how should we think about the way that God guides us if we don't have these so-called prophetic words to depend upon? 
Now, this is a really big topic, but I want to just briefly touch on it because I think it is usually related to the pre- present subject matter. The pastors of the church that Robert and I spent many, uh, a number of years in were well known in those circles for their prophetic gifts, as they would call them. And it was not uncommon for people to call them up and to ask them for a prophetic word to see if they had a prophetic word for them because they were seriously thinking and praying about a big life decision or a job perhaps that had been offered to them. Now, whether we seek this kind of thing externally from someone else or whether we seek it internally, wondering what God wants us to do, how should we think about that? As I said before, I want to reiterate that the distinction I'm laying out here is between the continuation or cessation of spiritual gifts. As for what God does regardless of that, I think there are a range of possibilities. So does God do this? Does He, for example, give us a a prompting or, or a sense of the right thing to do that He wants us to do? Does He lead us and guide us in that way through what Charles Spurgeon sometimes called impressions? Can we rightly call them those things? What would be the biblical reasoning for God doing something like that? Well, this is actually something, to be perfectly honest, that I have not completely made up my mind on yet. Uh, It is a current set of steps in my spirit and scripture salsa. But wherever we land on that, it is important to recognize that anything on top of the Bible that God might do or show us or lead us in is an unnecessary extra. You do not need that to live a faithful, fulfilled, glorious, God-honoring life. If your car has a reversing camera, then that will certainly be helpful for you when you're reversing out of a driveway, especially if it's my driveway. That thing is a death trap. But you don't need a reversing camera to be able to reverse your car. See, sometimes many Christians, we get very anxious about life decisions because we're afraid that we're going to miss out on God's will. That unless we have some kind of real peace or sense of of what we're supposed to be doing, then we're missing out. We speak of God opening doors. We speak of Him giving us peace. We speak of hearing a still, small voice. And that kind of language has become so normal in Christian lingo that most of us actually expect that all of us should have that experience. Christian, whether God leads you in this way or not, whether He does give you an impression or a peace or something like that, know that you are not less mature if you never feel something like that for your entire life. Let me say that again. Whether God leads you in this way or not, know that you are not less mature if you never feel something like that in your entire life. God has given you everything you need in His Word. Let me read to you what author Nancy Guthrie has to say on this. Does it really make a difference when we expect God to speak to us through the Scriptures rather than waiting to hear a divine voice in our heads? I think it does. When we know that God speaks personally and powerfully through His Word, we don't have to feel that our relationship to Christ is subpar or that we are experiencing a less-than-Christian life if we don't sense God giving us extra-biblical words of instruction 
or promise. Brothers and sisters, God has given you all the words that you need in His Word. You need not seek anything else. And if anything else does come your way and you are blessed by it, then you can thank the Lord for it. But recognize that it ultimately does not hold the highest authority in your life, nor is it the most life-altering thing you will ever hear or experience. Meeting Jesus in the Word of God holds that title. Let His Spirit through His Word lead you. And finally, how do we disagree well on this? Perhaps you've already picked up from what I've said that this can create some awkward and difficult scenarios between Christian brothers and sisters. How do you respond to an older saint that you admire and respect who tells you that they have a word from the Lord for you? How should you think about it if the word comes true or if it doesn't? What do you do if you had a legitimate experience of beginning to speak in tongues like my own wife does, but are starting to wonder whether it really is tongues or not? Well, the first thing to say, as I reminded us all, and will continue to do so throughout this series, is that chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians is in the center of this section for a reason. The most excellent way, the thing that will outlast all of the spiritual gifts, the thing that we can practice now and perfect in eternity, is love. If you find yourself in a disagreement about these things with a brother or sister, ask yourself the question, how do I love them through this disagreement? Are they equating their so-called word of knowledge or word from God or their tongues with Scripture as though it was an infallible, God-breathed word? Well, if so, then it is worth carefully and prayerfully thinking about how you might gently point this friend to the truth of God's word. Perhaps they wouldn't say that outright, but you know that the way that they live their lives functionally puts these you know, promptings or impressions or, or, or so-called prophetic words above Scripture. Try to lovingly show them how much greater it is to live in light of God's sure, rock-solid Word than on these unreliable inklings. Is it something that's not as significant and doesn't cause a clash of faithful obedience to God? Well, remember the way of love. Perhaps it's not worth it at this point and at this time to seek to come to agreement on what the Bible says on this matter with this brother or sister. Pray for wisdom in what to bring up and when and how. My hope for all of us in this is that regardless of where we land, on prophecy in tongues, our awe and our reverence and our assurance would be on the God-breathed Scripture that we can build our lives on. I pray that we would keep going to it, that we would keep encouraging each other with it, 
that we would keep seeking God's guidance by His Spirit through it. Paul would write to the Galatians, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. May we do so by letting Him lead through the illumination of His Scriptures. Brothers and sisters, hear the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we give you thanks because you have spoken. You have spoken through your prophets. You have spoken through your apostles. You have spoken through your Son. Lord, may we rejoice and treasure the fact that we have your very words. Lord, may we continually go to them and receive nourishment and life and guidance and may we live spirit-filled, scripture-infused, faithful lives of love and obedience to you. Lord, please do that in us individually. Do that in us, in the life of our church. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.